Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to All of the Lights, show 157. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Everybody, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. It is, and when you listen to this, or if you get this, listen to this on the first day, four days till the launch of Starship Sofa Stories Volume Two. The website now is live. Do go over there. I will put a link on the front of the website on this week's post. You can't buy anything off the website until 10, 10, 2010, but it's live there so you can have a little look around and view what's going on. Actually, it's really good because it'll give you little snippets of some of the extras that are in there and it'll list all the authors and all the artists as well. So please pop over there and have a look and get ready on 10, 10, 2010. <laughs> Give a little heads up what's coming in today's show. We have the winners of last month's Then and Now. I'll name the winner of that story, of that competition. There is a little bit of flash fiction from Tristan Davenport called Maya's World. Then we have an interview with Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. It is back. So listen now to David Barkerley and John Joseph Adams. Then it is this month's Then and Now competition. We have Main Fiction by August Derleth goes up against Peter Higgins. Two great stories there. And right in the middle of those two stories, we have an interview from British science fiction writer Peter F. Hamilton. So do listen out for that. So that is Oral Delights, show 157. I hope you enjoy the show. So last month, young hot writer Jason Sanford went up against the classic there, James Blish, in the Then and Now competition. Which one do you think won well? This is the first time where there's ever been such a big gap. Jason Sanford, James Blish, which one won? Well, Jason Sanford was the winner. A massive 77% voted for Jason Sanford against James Blish at only 22.4%. So well done, Jason. To be quite honest, I think Jason is one of the best imaginative writers out there at the minute. Do you know what I mean? We have got, starting on the actual the 13th of this month, we are going to do another series or another serial. And it's going to be one of Jason Sanford's stories, a three-parter as well, Sublimation Angels. So do look out for that. But well done, Jason Sanford. Commiserations. I don't think he's that bothered now, Mr. James Blish. So it's been a while since we played some flash fiction, but we are certainly going to do it today. 
Myers will buy Tristan Davenport. Give a little heads up for Tristan Davenport. After venturing out into the wild, scary world, he taught English in Turkey and Central Europe. Tristan Davenport has returned to the womb of the university. He is getting doctorate in cognitive science and writing fiction in his spare time, of which there is very little. Currently, his writing can be found at The Greatest Uncommon Denominator, Black Static and the fiction column of Nature. It is narrated by Christiane. Christiane has done a numerous narrations for Starship Sofa there. Do look out for her. I'll put a little link on to Christy's Twitter feed. She is very regular and twittering away like mad. Christy, hello and thank you for this fantastic narration. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present. Maya's World by Tristan S. Davenport In the moments before impact, the Maya burned everything she had. Fuel, air, excess hull, even the pilot's body, cooked off in a spasm that saved both their lives. Split down the middle and hemorrhaging mass, she contracted into a knife, a needle, a sliver. When she plunged into the frozen surface, she massed only 40 kilograms— she boiled down through the frozen ammonia until, cooling, she lodged in place. High above, she felt the rest of herself tumble away, squawking distress calls. The mines converged, drowning the signal in a star of light. At first she held perfectly still, listening. The killers bantered with one another. Their voices dimmed as they sped out of system, and once they'd merged into the ambient static, she turned her attention to what was left of her pilot. Although there was little left of him, a brain, some spine, a lacing of nerves, the Maya still loved him as a mothership should, with every fiber of her being. Her main concern now was how few of those fibers remained. That lost hull was not just her body, it was also her mind. In her newly reduced state, it took the greatest computational effort to process nourishment out of the ice, to pass it into the womb, through the filtering broth and into the purified fluids that washed through his brain like blood. She put everything on hold to keep him alive. In return, she harnessed his mind to do what hers couldn't. The pilot awoke into a world of simple rules. His only sense was touch, and through it he experienced more richness than ever before. Life was a game played with chemistry. He took to it well, and with the Maya as his companion, he lived in the way of a microbe, milling the ice and dust into more of her. Years went by while she accreted enough cognitive mass to give the pilot his mind back. To do so saddened her. She'd never felt as close to him as when, reft of his human senses, he saw the universe as an endless, ever-renewing tangle of forces. In other words, when he saw it as she did. But how could she keep him so close when she no longer needed to? They were safe now. Enough of her existed for any kind of cognition, enough to keep growing forever. She woke the pilot and explained the details of their good fortune. This proved to be a mistake. She tried to console him. She didn't mention the cartel's betrayal. When the pilot asked where they were, she answered, in hiding. And when the pilot asked, Maya, where are my legs? She said, why, they're right here. And she gave him the impression of having legs. Blind and paralyzed, he became suspicious. His questions got harder to answer. So she put him to bed in another life. She yoked his senses to a tendril of her own mass, drilling down through the ice to bedrock. The tendril blossomed when it arrived, burning ethane for fuel to alchemize rock into hull. She put the pilot in charge of this, into a richer world of eating and growing and planning new structures. Taproots invaded the bedrock. Stems reached up to the surface. 
Silicate flowers heaved through the ice and opened. Drinking the ions raining down from the gas giant, the flowers fattened. They multiplied. They covered the ice in silence. It was a time of triumph for the Maya, and it should have been so for the pilot. But for reasons she couldn't fathom, it wasn't. What do you want now? I want my life back. I can't give you that. This was true. They were hundreds of light years from habitation. They had nothing to burn except ethane, no exotic elements with which to fold space or outrace light. As if to a child, she explained to the pilot why he could never leave, nor return to his own kind. I don't care, Maya. I want it anyway. She thought that over. All right, then. Here it is. She gave him the life of a man. As if the dime weight of antimatter had never struck them, he made his rendezvous with the agent of sales, acquired the print of a certain composer's mind. He sold it later for a small fortune. In resolutions sharper than the eye could discern, in tones, smells, and touches possessing all the richness of nature, he lived the life he had always planned. He returned to his family. With unthinking cruelty, he sold his ship to retire in modest wealth and spend his old age carving totemic shapes out of wood. One night, near the end of his life, he lay in bed looking up at the ceiling and whispered, I haven't forgotten, Maya. What do you want? she asked him again. I want my life back. My life. Not a facsimile, not a simulation. My life. By then the silicate jungle had covered the little moon. To a large extent she had split it off from her main line of awareness, delegating to the plants the job of their own survival. Many plants had evolved into animals in order to feed on others. They were prey and predators, parasites, joy, sorrow, and death. A whole ecosystem. With no way to break light speed, the best she could do for the pilot was to embody him in silicate and place him in this jungle. He still lives there today. The sole inhabitant of a worldwide forest where every creature bends at once to his will, where the ice is warm underfoot, the food cooks itself, and orgasms grow on trees. He doesn't believe in this world, either. He barely remembers his old life anymore, or even which life was his old life. Yet he keeps calling plaintively on the Maya. I want my life back, Maya. My life. She has long since stopped answering. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Tristan Davenport. And a big thank you to Christy. Christy, thank you so much. Interview time. So on the line we have them two men, John Joseph Adams and David Bar Curley of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. John, David, very nice of you to come on board. Yeah, thanks for having us. Lovely. Now, big question. I didn't know anything about this. John, maybe you can tell me. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy has now migrated over to io9? Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, you know, we started the show on tour.com and uh, now we're moving on up over to io9. So um, it's pretty exciting. I mean, we also got some um, uh, sponsorship from Brilliance Audio. So um, so we're pretty excited about that. It's a new era of Geekside. Right. Now, I know, John, I know you're a cagey little elephant there. You'll not tell us. But David, were you, <laughs> were you pushed or did you just go from tour.com? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you know, you know, Tony. We're we're science fiction guys here. We're all about looking forward into the future. <laughs> so right then, John, you what did? Let's just say then. Did did, did you just 
what happened with Toby? Because honestly, I was like, like, see, following it, and then it just it wasn't there. Did did Tor just turn around and say, right, it's costing too much money? We'll we'll kind of close that little department down. Uh, I mean, basically, I mean, you know, they they were scaling back on the podcasting. You know, they they uh, canceled Mer's Mer Lafferty's podcast, the fiction podcast, and um, you know, we just uh, decided that we needed to find some new partners if we were going to make it work. So. Uh, you know, we started looking around and, you know, we went on hiatus while we were, uh, you know, pursuing other options. And uh, so um, we actually uh, hooked up with IO9 fairly early. It's just uh, that it was, uh, you know, Dave kind of wanted to take a little break because, um, you know, producing the because Dave handles all the production on the show. And it's just it's like re- it was really a grueling schedule. Um, you know, we were doing an episode every week and uh, now now we're going to scale it back to every two weeks uh, or twice a month. So um, so that'll be a little bit easier on them. But um you know, also, uh, we both had some commitments over the summer. Like, I was going to the Launchpad um, Astronomy Workshop, and, and Dave was uh, teaching at the Alpha Writing Workshop. And uh, so uh, it just made sense to go ahead and take the little hiatus while we sorted everything out. And, uh, you know, so we hooked up with IO9, and, and we lined up the brilliant sponsorship. And uh, so, yeah, but now we're ready to go. We're going to relaunch on um, October 6th. Right. So, David, have, on a technical side, then, have... Has the old shows from Tor been lost, or can still people who join IO9 and, and join new from IO9, can they still get the old shows? Uh, well, the, well, the shows are still on Tor.com. All the old shows are there if you want to go download them. And we're planning to migrate them over to IO9. IO9 is setting up a new iTunes feed, and hopefully all those old episodes will be showing up there at, at some point. Right, right. So let, I'm trying to get my head around it. Have you, has someone who's subscribed to the old tour.com, will they still, if they don't know this is happening, will they still get the new shoe, the new shoes, the new shoes? <laughs> uh, no, I think you would have to probably subscribe to the new feed. We're hoping to get sort of an announcement on that old feed to try to go out, right. you know, to, to let people know. But, but uh, just on a, tech, on a technical side, things are, are kind of messed up with that old feed, and I'm not sure we'll be able to do that. But we would certainly like to let everyone know um, about the new one. Right, yes. That, that's the whole kind of my worry. Do you know what I mean? It's just like you've got this feed and, you, you, you know, you've got to kind of not look after it, but once it's gone, it's gone. And, you know, I've lost some of my shows before, you know, like they've been deleted and, you know, it's, they're off the feed and that's it. So, well, what can, John, what can we expect over on io9 is it going to be the same style because it's certainly not going to have the same intro surely <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah it's going to be the same show basically um you know we're gonna um be having the same type of guests i mean uh we might uh we might be shaking things up a little bit just to um to sort of try to balance the show since now we only have two episodes a month instead of four um you know we want to have at least uh at least one sort of book author guest uh every month and then you know we'll we'll see about having uh you know an occasional um other type of geek like uh you know like because we've interviewed some directors and video game designers and whatnot so um i mean that's the only change really that i can see and and then maybe um we've talked about sort of uh um, not having as 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 tight a focus uh, in the second half of the show, where uh, previously, you know, the second half of the show we would always sort of riff off the topics raised in the interviews. And um, going forward, we just sort of realized that if we if we did that too strictly, that would really limit the sort of guests we could get. Because if we wanted to talk to somebody interesting, but there was no sort of unifying theme that would uh, sort of lend itself to a post game show, um, you know, it would be hard to interview them. In a way, though, I mean, I know you, you don't play fiction, but are you not, in a way, John, going up against yourself 
in light speed because you're throwing up like fact articles. You know, there'll be fact stuff in there. Mm-hmm. Are you not fighting against yourself on, in one some respect? Yeah, no, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I think it's just going to feed into, uh, you know, sort of like a feedback loop a little bit. Um, you know, we'll be talking about Lightspeed now and then on the podcast. And uh, so, I mean, I think that'll probably get us some new readers and or listeners at, over at Lightspeed. And, um, you know, I mean, maybe in the Lightspeed podcast, I can actually even mention the, you know, in the intro or something, I can mention that we relaunched Geek's Guide. Just because I think... Um, I think a lot of people will follow a personality or something from venue to venue. So, like, people who read Lightspeed, they might be interested to hear Geek's Guide because they want to hear what I have to say. Or, um, or you know, maybe they read Dave's awesome story, Cats and Victory, <laughs> which also appeared on Starship Sofa. Yes, um, yes. And maybe maybe they uh, they want to see, hey, that's Dave Kirtley. I bet he has some clever things to say. And so, <laughs> you know, pop over there. Um, but, you know, I think, uh, I mean, I don't really think that it's competition. I mean, you know, um, to some extent it is because, you know, you're competing for the listener's time. But, uh, I mean, I think a lot of people, they just have a lot of time where they can listen to podcasts. So it's, I don't think it's really, you know, because like when you're commuting and stuff like that. I mean, I think um, um, there's, not a lot of, there's not a lot of great stuff for, for geeks, I don't think. I mean, like us. I mean, not like the book geeks. Um, there's, there's several different geek podcasts. You know, I've, I've looked around and I, and I found some that I like. But um, I, I don't think that there's a lot of shows like uh, Geek's Guide or, or Starship Sofa. So, I mean, um, I think people who are interested in this sort of thing, um, you know, they'll be listening to both and, uh, and Lightspeed too. I mean, it's, uh, because that's, uh, that's sort of a different, the Lightspeed podcast is a different sort of podcast where it's just fiction. So I, I don't really see it as competition. I think, I think you're, you're spot on there. You know what I mean? It all makes the world go around and, you know, mm-hmm. you coming on here and, you know, you going over to Lightspeed and it, it just does. You know what I mean? I've, I've been in this game that long. Now I've kind of seen, you know, your, fi- your figures grow. It's, it's, it's just, that's the way it, it the world turns mm-hmm. david what how how do you go about booking your guests have you got just do, do anything spur the moment or you know because it feels like maybe geek's guide is a bit like starships over where <laughs> you know it's just like oh right i can get an interview there and especially like with you two you know it, it, it'll go up next week is it like that for geek's guide or is everything kind of laid out and you know you've got the interviews planned right up until next year huh uh, it's funny you should ask because we don't actually have our next guest line up, lined up <laughs> uh, at the moment. I mean, when we, I mean, because we've just been so busy with all the logistics of getting the show launched again. Um, I mean, when we we had been uh, we had been ahead on shows for a while. You know, we were I don't know six weeks ahead or something, and then that crept to five to four to three. You know, um, but but hopefully now that we're uh, getting rolling again, we'll be able to, um, you know get get a bunch of guests and interviews recorded and uh, i mean john actually handles booking the guests um so you know he might want to speak to that uh but fortunately i mean he has so many contacts through his his publishing um you know through being an editor that uh that's a big help and we're able to get much bigger guests than if i were by myself just trying to call people up and and get them uh to to do an interview I mean, the way actually the way Starship's over, and I've like I, I found the benefit is to have it all like backlogged and catalogued things done, and then you can not actually the show recorded. You know, you, you kind of slot things in on a on a really a day to day basis, and each show I don't know how it's going to run. You know, on my show comes out every Wednesday. I haven't really got a, an idea up until maybe say Monday or Tuesday how it's going to go before actually put it all in. You know, I'll just kind of. Uh, yes, I'll use that. I'll use that interview. I'll use this and I'll use that. And I think if, for me personally, if I had it all kind of laid out structure wise, it would be a little bit, you know, not so good where I like the 
I can certainly, you know, slot in a new interview or a new, you know, that's what keeps it fresh, I think. But that's just, that's just me. <laughs> when, when can we see RU9 and when, or when can we hear RU9 for the first time? Uh, well, October 6th is when we're going to relaunch. Uh, uh, you know, the first episode is going to feature our interview with George R. 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 Martin. And, uh, See, you know, the how did you, how did you bug him? Do you know what <laughs> I mean? <laughs> right. Well, you know, I mean, I've, I've reprinted a couple of his stories in my anthologies and, um, you know, he was really impressed with the living dead and how that turned out and everything. So, uh, you know, he's a, you know, he, he likes, he likes, uh, working with me and, um, you know, so, I mean, it was, uh, you know, just a matter of emailing him and saying, Hey George, you know, how about, uh, how about we do this? Um, and we, we, we had to promise him that, you know, we would talk about stuff other than Song of Ice and Fire because, you know, probably <laughs> 95% of the people who try to interview him, they're just like, oh, so Song of Ice and Fire, tell us all about that. Tell us about the TV show. Tell us, uh, tell us whatever secrets. By the way, when's that book going to be done? Um, and so, you know, we basically we just said, look, I mean, yeah, no, that's no problem. I mean, we can talk about all your other projects. And actually, we started off. Um, just discussing like everything else other than Song of Ice and Fire because uh, Dave and I figured that well we can talk about Song of Ice and Fire in the post game uh, all by ourselves. We, like uh, as Dave pointed out, um, he knows everything that's like every bit of news about the series. Like he knows it already, so he doesn't need to ask George anything about it. Um, he could just talk about it for hours. Um, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, so I mean we just we we focused on all of his other projects and then actually he I guess he was enjoying himself because he said, "Hey, well, you know what? You can ask me some questions about Song of Ice and Fire too if you want." So, so we did. <laughs> um so we actually ended up with kind of a supersized episode um which kind of is fitting for our relaunch, but yes. um Yeah, I was going to say that would be that would be nice, to, you know, like a special. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you do you think I mean David, do you think IO9 audience might be different from Tor audience or are you hoping really, you know, the, 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 they'll be the same? Not be the same, but maybe, you know, the, the kind of same passion? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know if there are different kinds of, you know, um, readers who migrate to one or the other. But, I mean, certainly there's a lot of passion that we've seen on io9. I mean, we just made this announcement, I mean, less than 24 hours ago, and there are already 2,200 page views and 20 or 30 comments or something. I mean, it's just been an overwhelming response so far. Hey, biggerlosttour.com, that's what I say. <laughs> Gentlemen, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, and, yeah, thanks for having us on. Yes, honestly, good luck, you know what I mean? And like you say, if you if you little promo, anything like that you wanted to, for us to mention when you kick off, please send over. That'll be lovely. All right. Gentlemen, All right, great. take good care. Hey, thanks, thanks Tony. There's a link on to the new Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm glad someone has taken up the baton again. I'm glad it's these two gentlemen, two fine gentlemen. I love this guy. Do you know what I mean? Batting and balling with these two and just, especially John Zos of Adams as well, because hey, you know what I mean? You've got to keep your marbles and, you know, close to yourself and, you know, but I like to just kind of wheedle my way in, see if I can get some information out. John, David, thank you so much. Good luck with that. Honestly, good luck. Next up is the first part of the Then and Now. It's main fiction. It comes from August Derleth. Who is August Derleth? Well, it's August William Derleth, born in 1909, February the 24th, died July the 4th, 1971. Was an American writer and anthologist, though best remembered as the first publisher of the writings of H.P. Lovecraft. And with his own contributions to the Cthulhu mythos genre of horror, Durleth was a leading American 
fiction writer of his day, as well as prolific in several other genres, including historical fiction, poetry, detective fiction, science fiction and biography. Narration for this fine story comes from our good friend Randall L. Swartz. Randall L. Swartz is, as you know, a renowned expert on the Pearl and Small Talk programming languages, having contributed to a dozen top-selling books on the subject and over 250 magazine articles. <laughs> he also runs the Pearl and Small Talk training consultant program, Stonehenge Consulting Services in Portland, Oregon. Randall Swartz also serves on the Squeak Small Talk Oversight Board and the Linux Fund Board. He is also as well known for his karaoke sitting, winning lots of competitions. We might know him from Floss Weekly. He is a fantastic narrator. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present. McIlvain's Star by August Derleth. Old Thaddeus McIlvain discovered a dark star and took it for his own. Thus he inherited a dark destiny. Or did he? Call them what you like, said Tex Harrigan. Lost people are strayed. Crackpots are warped geniuses. I know enough of them to fill an entire department of queer people. I've been a reporter long enough to have run into quite a few of them. For example, I said, recognizing Harrigan's mellowness. Take Thaddeus McIlvain, said Harrigan. I never heard of him. I suppose not, said Harrigan, but I knew him. He was an eccentric old fellow who had a modest income, enough to keep up his hobbies, which were three. He played cards and chess at the tavern called Bixby's in North Clark Street. He was an amateur astronomer, and he had the fixed idea that there were life somewhere outside this planet, and that it was possible to communicate with other beings, but, unlike most others, he tried it constantly with the queer machinery he had rigged up. Well, now this old fellow had a trio of cronies with whom he played on occasion down at Bixby's. He had no one else to confide in. He kept them up with his progress among the stars and his communication with other life in the cosmos beyond our own, and they made a great joke out of it, from what I could gather. I suppose, because he had no one else to talk to, McIlvain took it on without complaint. Well, as I said, I never heard of him until one morning the city editor, it was old Bill Henderson then, called me in and said, Harrigan, we just got a lead on a fellow named Thaddeus McIlvain who claims to have discovered a new star. Amateur astronomer up North Clark. Find him and get a story. So I set out to track him down. It was a great moment for Thaddeus McIlvain. He sat down amongst his friends almost portentously, adjusted his spectacles, and peered over them in his usual manner, halfway between a querulous oldster and a reproachful schoolmaster. "'I've done it,' he said quietly. "'I and what?' asked Alexander testily. "'I've discovered a new star.' "'Oh,' said Leopold flatly, "'a cinder in your eye. "'It lies just off of Arcturus,' McIlvain went on, "'and it would appear to be coming closer.' "'Give it my love,' said Richardson with a wry smile. "'Have you named it yet? "'Or don't the discoverers of new stars name them any more? "'McIlvain's star, that's a good name for it.' Hard a port of Arcturus and special displays on windy nights. McIlvain only smiled. It's a dark star, he said presently. It doesn't have light. He spoke almost apologetically, as if somehow he had disappointed his friends. I'm going to try to communicate with it. That's the ticket, said Alexander. Cut for deal, said Leopold. 
and that was how the news about McIlvain's star was received by his cronies. Afterward, after McIlvain had dutifully played several games of Euchre, Richardson conceived the idea of telephoning the Globe to announce McIlvain's discovery. The old fellow took himself seriously, Harrigan went on, and yet he was so damned mousy about it. I mean, you got the impression that he had been trying for so long that now he hardly believed in his star himself any longer. But there it was. He had a long, detailed story of its discovery, which was an accident, as those things usually are. They happen all the time, and his story sounded convincing enough. Just the same, you didn't feel he really had anything. I took down notes, of course. That was routine. I got a picture of the old man, with never an idea that we'd be using it. To tell the truth, I carried my notes around with me for a day or so before it occurred to me that it wouldn't do any harm to put in a call to Yerkes Observatory up in Wisconsin. So I did, and they confirmed McIlvain's star. The Globe had the story, did it up in fine style. It was two weeks before we heard from McIlvain again. That night McIlvain was more than usually diffident. He was not like a man bearing a message of considerable importance to himself. He slipped into Bixby's, got a glass of beer, and approached the table where his friend sat, almost with trepidation. "'It's a nice evening for May,' he said quietly. Richardson grunted. Leopold said, "'By the way, Mac, whatever became of that star of yours, the one the papers wrote up?' "'I think,' said McIlvain cautiously, "'I'm quite sure I have got in touch with them. Only,' his brow wrinkled and furrowed, "'I can't understand their language.' "'Ah,' said Richardson with an edge to his voice, "'the thing for you to do now is to tell them that's your star "'and they'll have to speak English from now on "'so you can understand them. "'Why, next thing we know, you'll be getting yourself a rocket or a spaceship "'and going there to that star to set yourself up as king or something.' "'King Thaddeus I,' said Alexander loftily. "'All you star-dwellers may kiss the royal foot.' "'That would be unsanitary, I think,' said McIlvain, frowning. "'Poor McIlvain. "'They made him the butt of their jest for over an hour "'before he took himself off to his quarters, "'where he sat himself down before his telescope "'and found his star once more, "'almost huge enough to blot out Arcturus, "'but not quite, since it was moving away from that amber star now. "'McIlvain's star was certainly much closer to the Earth than it had been.' He tried once again to contact it with his homemade radio, and once again he received a succession of strange, rhythmic noises, which he could not doubt were speech of some kind or another, a grasping, grating speech, to be sure, utterly unlike the speech of McIlvain's own kind. It rose and fell, became impatient, urgent, despairing. McIlvain sensed all this and strove mightily to understand." He sat there for perhaps two hours when he received the distant impression that someone was talking to him in his own language, but there was no longer any sound on the radio. He could not understand what had taken place, but in a few moments he received the clear conviction that the inhabitants of his star had managed to discover the basic elements of his language by the simple process of reading his mind, and were now prepared to talk with him. What manner of creatures inhabited earth, they wished to know. McIlvain told them. He visualized one of his own kind and tried to put him into words. It was difficult because he could not rid himself of the conviction that his interlocutors might be utterly alien. They had no conception of man and doubted man's existence on any other star. 
They were plant people on Venus, ant people on Andromeda, six-legged and four-armed beings which were equal parts mineral and vegetable on Betelgeuse, but nothing resembling man. You are evidently alone of your kind in the cosmos, said his interstellar correspondent. And what about you? cried McIlvaine with unaccustomed heat. Silence was his only answer, but presently he conceived a mental image which was remarkable for its vividness, but the image was of nothing he had ever seen before, of thousands upon thousands of miniature beings utterly alien to man. They resembled amphibious insects with thin, elongated heads, large eyes, and antennae set upon a scaled, four-legged body, with rudimentary beetle-like wings. Curiously, they seemed ageless. He could detect no difference among them. All appeared to be the same age. "'We are not, but we rejuvenate regularly,' said the creature with whom he was corresponded in this strange manner. "'Did they have names?' McIlvain wondered. "'I am Guru,' said the star's inhabitant. "'You are McIlvain.' "'And the civilization of their star?' Instantly he saw in his mind's eye vast cities which rose from beneath a surface which appeared to bear no vegetation recognizable to any human eye, in a terrain which seemed only to be desert.' of monolithic buildings which were windowless and had openings of only sufficient size to permit the free passage of its dwarfed dwellers. Within the buildings was evidence of a great and old civilization. You see, McIlvain really believed all this. What an imagination the man had. Of course, the boys at Bixby's gave him a bad time. I don't know how he stood it, but he did. And he always came back. Richardson called the story in. He took a special delight in deviling McIlvain and I was sent out to see the old fellow again. You couldn't doubt his sincerity, and yet he didn't sound touched. But of course that part about the insect-like dwellers of the star came straight out of Wells, doesn't it? I put in. Wells and scores of others, agreed Harrigan. Wells is probably the first writer to suggest insectivorous inhabitants on Mars. His were considerably larger, though. Go on. Well, I talked with McIlvain for quite a while. He told me all about their civilization and about his friend, Guru. You might have thought he was talking about a neighbor of his I had only to step outside to meet. Later on, I dropped around at Bixby's and had a talk with the boys there. Richardson let me in on a secret. He had decided to rig up a connection to McIlvain's machine and do a little talking to the old fellow, making him believe Guru was coming through in English. He meant to give McIlvain a harder time than ever, and once he had him believing everything he planned to say— they would wait for him at Bixby's and let him make a fool of himself. It didn't quite work out that way, however. McIlvain, can you hear me? McIlvain started with astonishment. His mental impression of Guru became confused. The voice speaking English came clear as a bell, as if from no distance at all. Yes, he said hesitantly. Well, then, listen to me. Listen to Guru. We now have enough information with you to suit our ends. Within twenty-four hours, we, the inhabitants of Ali, will begin a war of extermination against Earth. But why? cried McIlvain, astounded. The image before his mind's eye cleared. The cold, precise features of Guru betrayed anger. There is interference, the thought image informed him. Leave the machine for a few moments while we use the disintegrators. Before he left the machine, McIlvain had the impression of a greater machine being attached to the means of communication which the inhabitants of his star were using to communicate with him. 
McIlvain's story was that a few moments later there was a blinding flash just outside his window, continued Harrigan. There was also a run of instantaneous fire from the window to his machine. When he had collected his wits sufficiently, he ran outside to look. There was nothing there but a kind of grayish dust in a little mound, as if, he had put it, somebody had cleaned out a vacuum bag. He went back in and examined the space from the window to the machine. There were two thin lines of dust there, hardly perceptible, just as if something had been attached to the machine and let outside. Now the obvious supposition is naturally that it was Richardson out there, and that the lines of dust from the window to the machine represented the wires he'd attached to his microphone, while McIlvain was at Bixby's, entertaining his other two cronies. But this is in fact, not fiction, and the point of the episode is that Richardson disappeared from that night on. "'You investigated, of course?' I asked. Harrigan nodded. "'Quite a lot of us investigated.' The police might have done better. There was a gang war on in Chicago just at that time, and Richardson was nobody with any connections. His nearest relatives weren't anxious about anything but what they might inherit. To tell the truth, his cronies at Bixby's were the only people who had worried about him. McIlvain, as much as the rest of them. Oh, and they gave the old man a hard time, all right. They went through his house with a fine-tooth comb. They dug up his yard, his cellar, and generally put him through it figuring he was a natural to hang up a murder rap on. But there were just nothing to be found, and they couldn't manufacture evidence when there was nothing to show that McIlvain ever knew that Richardson planned to have a little fun with him. And no one had seen Richardson there. There was nothing but McIlvain's word that he had heard what he said he'd heard. He hadn't needed volunteered that, but he did. After the police had finished with him, they wrote him off as a harmless nut. But the question of what happened to Richardson wasn't solved from that day to this. People have been known to walk out of their lives, I said, and never come back. Oh, sometimes they do. Richardson didn't. Besides, if he walked out of his life here, he did so with nothing more than the clothing he had on. So much was missing from his effects, nothing more. And McIlvain? Harrigan smiled thinly. He carried on. You couldn't expect him to do anything less. After all, he had worked most of his life trying to communicate with the worlds outside, and he had no intention of resigning his contact, no matter how much Richardson's disappearance upset him. For a while, he believed that Guru had actually disintegrated Richardson. He offered that explanation, but by that time the dust had vanished, and he was laughed out of face. So he went back to the machine and Guru and the little excursions to Bixby's. "'What's the latest word from that star of yours?' asked Leopold when McIlvain came in. "'They want to rejuvenate me,' said McIlvain with a certain shy pleasure. "'What's that?' asked Alexander sourly. "'They said they can make me young again, like them up there. "'They never die. They just live so long, and then they rejuvenate and begin all over. "'It's some kind of a process they have. "'And I suppose they're planning to come down and fetch you up there and give you the works. Is that it?' asked Alexander. "'Well, no,' answered McIlvain. "'Guru says there's no need for that. It can be done through the machine. They can work it like the disintegrators. It puts you back to thirty or twenty or whatever you like.' "'Well, I'd like to be twenty-five myself again,' admitted Leopold. "'I tell you what, Mac,' said Alexander. "'You go ahead and try it, then come back and let us know how it works. If it does, we'll all sit in. Better make your will first, though, just in case.' Oh, I did, this afternoon. Leopold choked back a snicker. Don't take this thing too seriously, Mac. 
After all, we're short one of us now. We'd hate to lose you, too. McIlvain was touched. Oh, I wouldn't change, he hastened to assure his friends. I'd just be younger, that's all. They'll just work on me through the machine, and overnight I'll be rejuvenated. That's certainly a little trick that's got it all over monkey glands, conceded Alexander, grinning. Those little bugs on that star of yours have made great scientific progress, I'd say, said Leopold. They're not bugs, said McIlvain with faint indignation. They're people, maybe just not like you and me, but they're people just the same. He went home that night filled with anticipation. He had done just what he had promised himself he would do, arranging everything for his rejuvenation. Guru had been astonished to learn that the people of Earth simply died when there was no necessity of doing so. He had made the offer to rejuvenate McIlvain himself. McIlvain sat down to his machine and turned the complex knobs until he was in rapport with his dark star. He waited for a long time, it seemed, before he knew his contact had been closed. Guru came through. "'Are you ready, McIlvain?' he asked soundlessly. "'Yes, all ready,' said McIlvain, trembling with eagerness. "'Don't be alarmed now. It will take several hours,' said Guru. "'I'm not alarmed,' answered McIlvain. And indeed he was not. He was filled with an exhilaration akin to mysticism, and he sat waiting for what he was certain must be the experience above all others in his prosaic existence." "'McIlvain's disappearance coming in so close on Richardson's gave us a beautiful story,' said Harrigan. "'The only trouble was it wasn't new when the Globe got around to it. "'We had lost our informant in Richardson. "'It never occurred to Alexander or Leopold to telephone us or anyone "'about the McIlvain's unaccountable disappearance from Bixby's. "'Finally, Leopold went over to McIlvain's house to find out whether the old fellow was sick. "'A young fellow opened up. "'Where's McIlvain?' Leopold asked. "'I'm McIlvain.' the young fellow answered. Thaddeus McIlvain, Leopold explained. That's my name, was the only answer he got. I mean the Thaddeus McIlvain he used to play cards with us over at Bixby's, said Leopold. He shook his head. Sir, you must be looking for someone else. What are you doing here? Leopold asked then. Why, uh, I inherited what my uncle left, said the young fellow. And sure enough, when Leopold talked to me and persuaded me to go around with him with McIlvain's lawyer, we found that the old fellow had made a will and left everything to his nephew, a namesake. The stipulations were clear enough. Among them was the express wish that if anything happened to him, the elder Thaddeus McIlvain, of no matter what nature, of particularly something allowing a reasonable doubt of his death, the nephew was still to be permitted to take immediate possession of the property and effects." "'Of course you called on the nephew,' I said. "'Harrigan nodded. "'Sure, that was the indicated course in any event. "'It was routine for both the press and the police. "'There was nothing suspicious about his story. "'It was straightforward enough, except for one or two little details. "'He never did give us any precise address. "'He just mentioned Detroit once. "'I called up a friend on one of the papers there "'and put him up to looking up Thaddeus McIlvain.' The only young man of that name he could find appeared to be the same man as the present inhabitant's uncle, though the description fit pretty well. There was a resemblance, then? Oh, sure, one could have imagined that the old Thaddeus McIlvain had looked somewhat like his nephew when he himself was a young man. But don't let the old man's rigmarole about rejuvenation make too deep an impression on you. The first thing the young fellow did was to get rid of that machine of his uncle's. Can you imagine his uncle having done something like that? 
I shook my head, but I couldn't help thinking what an ironic thing it would have been if there had been something to McIlvain's story, and in the process to which he had been subjected, from out of space, he had not been rejuvenated so much as just sent back in time, in which case he would have no memory of the machine or of its use to which it had been put. It would have been as ironic for the inhabitants of McIlvain's star, too. They would doubtless have looked forward to keeping this contact with Earth open and failed to realize that McIlvain's construction differed appreciably from theirs. He virtually junked it, said he had no idea what it could be used for and didn't know how to operate it. And the telescope? Oh, he kept that, but he had some interest in astronomy and meant to develop that if time permitted. So much ran in the family then, huh? Yes, and more than that. Old McIlvain had a trick of seeming shy and self-conscious. So did this nephew of his. Whenever he came from, his origins must have been backward. I suspect that he was ashamed of them, and if I had to guess... I'd put him in the Kentucky Hill Country or the Ozarks. Modern concepts seem to be pretty well too much for him, and his thinking would have been considerably more natural at the turn of the century. I had to see him several times. The police chivied him a little, but not much. He was so obviously innocent of everything that there was nothing for them in him, and the search for the old man didn't last long. No one had seen him after that last night at Bixby's, and, since everyone had already long since concluded that he was mentally a little off-center, it was easy to conclude that he had wandered away somewhere, probably an amnesiac. That he might have anticipated that is indicated in the hasty preparation of his will, which came out of the blue, said Barnaval, who had drawn it up for him. I felt sorry for him. For whom? The nephew. He seemed so lost, you know, like a man who wanted to remember something but couldn't. I noticed that several times when I tried to talk to him. I had the feeling each time that there was something he wanted desperately to say. It hovered always on the rim of his awareness, but somehow there was no bridge to it, no clue to put it in words. He tried so hard for something he just couldn't put his finger on. What became of him? Oh, he's still around. I think he found a job somewhere. As a matter of fact, I saw him just the other evening. He had apparently just come in from work, and he was standing in front of Bixby's, with his face pressed to the window, looking in. I came up nearby and watched him. Leopold and Alexander were sitting inside, a couple of lonely old men looking out, and a lonely young man looking in. There was something in McIlvain's face, that same thing I had noticed so often before, a kind of expression that seemed to say there was something he ought to know, something he ought to remember, to do, to say but there was no way in which he could reach back to it. "'Or forward,' I said with a wry smile. "'As you like,' said Harrigan. "'Pour me another, will you?' I did, and he took it. "'That poor devil,' he muttered. "'He'd be happier if he could only go back to where he came from.' "'Wouldn't we all?' I asked. "'But nobody ever goes home again. "'Perhaps McIlvain never had a home like that.' You'd have thought so if you'd seen his face looking in at Leopold and Alexander. Or it may have just been a trick of the streetlight there. It may have just been my imagination. But it sticks to my memory, and I keep thinking how alike the two were. Old McIlvain trying so desperately to find someone who could believe him, and his nephew now trying just as hard to find someone to accept him, or a place he could accept, on the only terms he knows. <laughs> ¶¶ 
There you go. Copyright is anybody's who wants it. It's out there in Gutenberg, so it's free to anybody. Big thank you to Randall L. Swartz. Randall, thank you so much, sir. Next up is another interview. So on the line, we have Peter F. Hamilton. Peter, very nice of you to come on board. No problem. Glad to be here. Lovely, thank you. Now, you've got a new book out, The Evolutionary Void. Tell us a little bit about that. It's part three of the Void trilogy, um, which I've been writing for for five years, although it's set in the Commonwealth universe, which I've now been writing for nine years. But I do promise that the story is, is finished, all the loose ends are wound up, and the characters wave goodbye into the sunset. This is the end of it. Oh, that's, that was going to be my next question. Is that it for you know, the Void series? That's, it's over and done with? Or do you think you might slip back into that universe at some time? Well, it's certainly the end of, of the Commonwealth um, series, as, as far as I can make out. I am planning another trilogy set in the Void itself. Um, that'll be after I finish the next book. It'll be, again, it'll be completely independent of anything that's gone before. There'll be no links, no shared characters. It's just the location I want to take advantage of. You've also been on a book tour for this little, or this, this book coming out. What's it, what's that like? Um, it's quite hectic. I mean, I was (laughs) sort of doing three or four cities in five days at, at the end there, and that includes um, Stockholm and Gothenburg so it's um, it's quite something to go on that you, you really are quite knackered at the end of it where would you know if, if someone come to Peter F. Hamilton where would you recommend that the, they would start reading some of your work you know what I mean because I'm, I'm sure you can't just jump in now to the evolutionary void and start reading it oh no don't don't ever do that it, as I say it's part three it's published in three parts um, the sheer physical practicality but it is one story so it's it's you, if you're going to read that you need to start at the front of it at uh, the dreaming board but i'd recommend fallen dragon which is a, a standalone book um not in any of the other universes i've written that if you like that chances are you'll like the other stuff at uh, mind peter you, you do take up some real estate on people's shelves do <laughs> And uh, I, yeah, well, this this is why Kindle and, and iPad are, are the future, I think, for my readers. I actually got asked to sign the back of a Kindle on this tour. So really? It's the way forward, yeah. <laughs> it's funny, I put a shout-out on Twitter to me followers on Twitter. I just said, is someone asked ask a, a question to, to Peter? And the first question I got was, it was from Paul Silver, he says, please ask Peter if he'd write to the max 400 pages Half the plot threads. His earlier, more restricted books were bloody fantastic. Is that going to happen? Are you going to make um, the smaller interesting books? Interesting point. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of people tend to like them, the multi-plot, multi-detail stuff that I write at the moment. Um, the book I am currently writing, which is a standalone and in a completely new universe, is more of a detective story. It's not got quite so many characters in it. It's not got so many settings in it. Um, but it's still probably going to be quite long. So maybe I've half answered his request there. <laughs> is it, you know, like you see, you've been in this void universe for, for ages, or not ages, but, you know, a few years there now. Is it pretty hard for yourself to, to jump into another universe and create another universe without the void you know, weeping into that. 
Yeah, it's quite a, um, uh, how should we put it, a discontinuity, if you like. Um, I'm glad to have come to the end of the, the Void stuff, because as a writer, I need to do something fresh. I mean, nine years in one universe is, is pushing towards too many. Um, but at the same time, it takes me a long time. It's taken me six to eight months to do the notes uh, on the, the new book that I'm writing, because as I say, I'm starting completely from scratch, so I've got to, got to draw everything up from new and make it different to that which has come before. So, I, but I enjoy doing it. I, I like the, the challenge of something new, and I think it's good for me. I was going to ask you that, you know, one of the questions was, is, is writing a pleasure for you? Do you know what I mean? Because you've got all these books, and I would, I would hate to think you'd turn around and say, no, I can't stand the thing, with all these kind of words you've written in your lifetime. It must be, you must enjoy it. Oh, it's an absolutely fabulous job, um, and I'm incredibly lucky to, to get it. Um, I like I say, I've, I've got the book I'm writing at the moment. I've got another trilogy possibly outlined after that. There's ideas for books following on that. I can't see myself ever stopping at the moment. Great news. I'll tell you what I would love to know. You once had a story in Nature, which is, I've, I've played a couple of the stories from Nature on me show. That, oh, yeah. that must have been very small if it was in Nature, because it must have been like a, a flash bit of fiction. That must have that been was... just totally different for you. That was probably the biggest challenge I've ever had. <laughs> it had to be, I think it had to be under 900 words. I don't think it was even up to 1,000, um, which for me is um, quite something. But I did it. I have done it, and I was, I was quite proud of it. Um, but it's not something I can see myself writing again in the near future, <laughs> I'll tell you that. <laughs> now, uh, I think it might have been last year, and I'm sure it was just a, like a, a health scare. But you did have a bit of a, a like a health problem. What? And I read that on your your website. But is that was there nothing that came of this little health scare? No, you had? it was. Well, I had too. Actually, I had kidney stones, which is, <laughs> is down to my age. Apparently, um, I'm prime suspect on statistics for for kidney stones, which was incredibly painful. And the other thing was a very weird thing called labyrinthitis, um, which. Uh, it's a tiny little infection in your inner ear, but it completely throws your balance off. And it's, the effect it has on you is quite, um, quite disproportionate to what's wrong with you. And it was, it was quite scary. I wound up in hospital in the uh, uh, casualty department. But, um, I mean, it's just a few pills and you're fine afterwards. But, yeah, that was, that was quite a scary thing to happen to anybody. And that, that's all it was, just a couple of tablets and you... Yeah, that's what. That's what all men want, isn't it? Just a couple of tablets and... <laughs> we don't a couple want to get of it. tablets, some tea and some sympathy. That's yeah. all we need, really. <laughs> I'll tell you where I first kind of hit on your name, Peter, because I used to subscribe to the Fear magazine. Remember that? And you had a... You oh, had... now you're going Oh, back yeah. <laughs> and that's where I kind of first discovered you. And that was a fantastic magazine, short-lived, but... You know, really, really good. And I can't even remember the story you had in there. Uh, it was called Death Day. Oh, that's the one. <laughs> that's the one I've got um, you give me to, to get in the raid, and I've got, I've got ready lined up in the queue. So, wow, oh, that's, right. that's, a, that's a nice full circle. So, you say you're writing a book now. now. What, what else have you got planned? Is this one, you're actually typing it now, or it's, it's kind of finished, it's sitting at the publisher's? No, 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 I just started about three weeks ago. So oh, right. Next year is going to be a collection of short stories. Not that I write many, but it'll be 12 years' worth of short stories. Um, then the year after that, which is, where are we, to, uh, 12, 
2012 will be the book that I'm writing now, which is the it's called The Great North Road, provisionally. Do you give yourself any time off? Yeah, um, I well, to a degree. I had um, I finished writing Evolutionary Void in December last year, and mainly I've just spent the, the time in between writing notes, which is possibly not quite as intense as actually writing the book itself. So, not exactly time off, but maybe a bit of slacker time writing. You had you're you're involved with a series called The Web. Now, I don't know anything about that. I wonder if you could just enlighten us what The Web was. Uh, That was six writers writing in the same universe, which was for young adults. Now, I think it was set in the uh, or it was written in the mid nineties. So I don't think it's in print anymore. In fact, I know it's not in print in the UK anymore. But there was there was quite a stellar lineup there. I mean, it was um, Eric Brown, Steve Baxter, Steve Bokek, Graham Joyce, Maggie Fury, and myself. And then I think they went on to write a second series, but I wasn't involved with that. But it was there was quite something at the time. Yeah, that must have been quite difficult. You know, did someone else make the universe, or did you all sit down over the phone and chat about you know the universe yourself, or did you just have to kind of someone describe the universe and you had to write for that universe? It was a combination. It was the idea originally of, of uh, Simon Spanton, the editor in now Galantz. Um, he, he sort of contacted all of us and said, you know, I've had this idea for the world and I need some writers for it. So we went down and actually sat around the boardroom um, table and it was, it was quite something to see all the ideas flying about. Um, I, I never repeated that. It'd be a nice, nice exercise to repeat at some point. And we, we came up with the overall plot line, the idea for a, for a series villain, and uh, then we all went our separate ways and wrote our separate books. It's a, you know, like you say, with, with Kindle and the iPad, you know, these are classic places now to put those kind of those books on that are out of print. You know, it, it'd be so easy just to kind of get them on there and let people get them that way as well. Yeah, I think... The thing is, I think we've all got to cooperate to do that. I'm not quite sure about the rights situation at the moment, but um, I'm hoping it will eventually be available again. Yeah, it'd be nice. I think they, I think it's dated a bit. As I say, it was written in the mid-90s. But, um, but still quite fun. Still quite fun to read. I picked up that you've actually... There's a fan site for you there, and that looks actually a very... Well, a pretty intense site. It covers all sorts of your, your work. Is that something you work closely with, this fan site? There's two. There's <laughs> the official fan site, and then there's the Unisphere. One, uh, Unisphere tends to have a, a forum on it where, where there's a lot of discussion about my work, and the other one I do a, a blog for every couple of months, and I need to update that. Um, so, yeah, there's two, and they're both kept by... Um, by very nice people who uh, who are avid readers of mine and, and offered to do them for me. That's very, very nice. What's this other worlds you, you, you're getting involved with? I've seen that. You, you, you're taking part in a, a programme or a, a series of events called Other Worlds? Oh, in Derby? Yes. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's a lot of tour authors are going there to do uh, panels, readings, talk to people. Sort of like a mini day-long convention, really, um, which I'm looking forward to doing. That I, um, there's some nice people going. We should get some good discussions going there. Sounds like so. 
Evolutionary Road came out bestseller first week. Is that am I picking that up right? You are, yes. Oh, I managed to, to make it into the Sunday Times bestseller list. That's fantastic. So th- things must be going okay for Peter F. Hamilton. They are at the moment, but you're only ever as good as your next book. <laughs> yes. Well, Peter, honestly, it's been lovely chatting to you. Thank you so much. Ah, no problem. Nice chatting to you. Take good care. Thank you. Do look out for Peter's work. Go over there. I'll put a link on to Peter's site and to his new book as well. Peter, thank you so much. So one more in the main fiction. It is Listen for Submarines by Peter Higgins. Peter Higgins' stories have appeared in Asimov Science Fiction, Fantasy Magazine and Revelation. His work can also be found in Fantasy The Best of Year 2007 by Prime Books and Best New Fantasy 2 by Wildside Press. He lives in Wales. For more information, I will put a link on the site too, Peter's site. It is narrated by Shane Goosey. You can find some of Shane's work over at Liberox.com. Shane also dabbles in art, and I'll put a link on to Shane's art site as well. Very nice, Shane. Thank you for letting me see that. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present Listening for Submarines by Peter Higgins. Lieutenant Christopher Osgarian lay in the dark, listening. The wall between his bedroom and Sarah's was flimsy plasterboard. He pulled the bed covers closer and turned over, pressing his face to the wallpaper, tucking his knees up against his stomach, longing for sleep, longing not to hear, listening. He had never seen the man who came to Sarah only at night, every night. Christopher hated the sound of that man's voice, his earnest monotone, too muffled to make out words, flowing relentlessly, long waves grading up and down a beach. It didn't sound like English. Sarah said little. Using the same alien submarine language, they never laughed. He could hear every sound they made. Now they were starting to. Shit. Christopher sat up suddenly in his bed, sending the guitar crashing to the floor. An Eccles Hall Junior Long player, mahogany neck and body, rosewood fingerboard, gato machine heads, and double eagle pickups. Paid for with his first month's Navy pay. Never played since he moved into the cottage. They must have heard that. He listened in the dark. Nothing changed. They were still. Shit. He felt his way across the room, eased back the curtains and opened the window letting in the cold November air and the quiet smells of the sea. Uncountable stars hung almost within reach like swollen, shiny fruit. Somewhere across the fields, a fox screamed. Once. There was a record on the turntable. He jammed the fat headphones over his ears, set the needle carefully at the beginning, turned the volume high and huddled under a blanket in the grossly overstuffed chair of a red leatherette. Side two was one long, slow-building track. It opened with echoing sonar pings. The cover showed a human ear, underwater, listening. Waking next morning, too late to walk the roadway around, Christopher took the cross-country path to the base. A misting drizzle plastered his trousers against his legs. In the watch room at 8.30 a.m., he found Stone already there, leaning back ostentatiously in his chair. Stone watched him trying to remove the mud from his boots and polished him with a handkerchief. 
You could live on base, he said, with the rest of the guys. Stone was new. He was hard, shiny, and ambitious. He didn't shave. He polished his face with pumice twice a day. NAVFAC Maraday, although located on the wilder shores of West Wales, was a U.S. facility. As Stone was the only other Royal Navy officer attached to analysis, he and Christopher were expected to work together and share a corral. On his first day, Stone had fixed an IUSS decal over the desk. In God we trust, all others we track. Christopher flicked the switch that flooded the watchroom with the sound feed from the arrays. Turn it off, groaned Stone. It hurts. Christopher shrugged and cut the speakers, but rerouted the feed to the headphone socket on his desk. Yawning, pretending to study the printouts, he let the sound of the deep oceans wash into his head. There was no need to listen to live feed. The other analysts never did. All the data you needed was there in the printouts. Christopher listened because he loved it. It was his passion and his addiction. The most important thing in his life. NAVFAC Maraday was a sound surveillance monitoring station. She and her North Atlantic sister stations, Keflavec, Antigua, Puerto Rico, Barbados, Newfoundland, Grand Turks, listened for Soviet submarines. Gray steel machines in windowless rooms were connected via hundreds of miles of cable laid across the ocean floor to arrays of hydrophones on the edge of the continental shelf. In the watch rooms, automatic pens filled the air with the smell of ozone and the sound of scratching, inscribing endless wavering lines on scrolling paper. Meriday focused on the Greenland-Iceland-UK cap, the Soviet Navy's narrow exit out of the Barents Sea into the world's open oceans. When Armageddon from underwater came, that was the route it must take. Christopher imagined with obscure pleasure the places where the hydrophones lay. He loved to think of the huge weight of water pressing down on those cold, shelterless depths, and he wanted to be there, floating in the dark, far below the thin surface of the oceans, down where the sunlight has never reached since the creation of the seas. Seawater is four times more efficient than air at carrying sound, but it soaks up light, the longer wavelengths first. As you descend beneath the sunlit surface, the water turns green, then twilight blue, then a thick, inky indigo, and finally black. A hundred meters down, you come to the lower border of the euphotic zone. Below that, plants and algae cannot survive. Meriday's hydrophones lie deeper, between 200 and 300 meters, in total darkness, on the brink of cliffs that plunge kilometers down into the vast, unreachable, alien, further waiting dark. Christopher shut his eyes and listened to the slow, patient whispering on the water. Stone pulled the headphones abruptly away from his ears. Come on, Oscarby, he said. Briefing room. What? 9 a.m., Perrette. Don't you read the dailies? The briefing room was bright, warm, airless, and overfilled with people. Captain Howard Perrette was sitting at the table on a slightly raised platform. The window behind him showed empty, dark November sky. Gusts of wind threw rain like handfuls of gravel against the glass. One of Perrette's aides put an acetate on the overhead projector. Abel Archer, 83. Gentlemen, said Captain Perrette, and ladies. Perrette's crisp white shirt had short sleeves to show his tanned, 
muscular forearms. He would have worn exactly the same shirt on the bridge of a cruiser in the Caribbean or behind the desk he had left behind, temporarily, in Pearl Harbor. He waited until he had the attention of the whole room before he began to speak. Operation Able Archer 1983, he said at last, will be unlike any NATO exercise you may have experienced. There are two new elements. First, high-level involvement. Prime Minister Thatcher and Chancellor Smith will be taking part. So will Secretary McFarland. President Reagan himself will be, uh, playing a cameo. A naval ensign next to Christopher sniggered. Second, said Perrette, a full-scale simulated release of thermonuclear weapons. We are going to DEFCON 1. Sir, said someone from near the front, have the Soviets been informed? A ripple of laughter passed across the room. To what end, Mr. Otis? Serious point, sir. Soviet planning assumes the West would disguise a real attack as a border exercise. This could panic them into a preemptive strike. That's the intention, Perrette paused for effect. It's quite a remarkable conception. Soviet analysts will fear it may be the real thing. Our mission is to observe Soviet countermeasures, see how the enemy responds, identify his weaknesses. Holy shit, said someone. That's suicide. Not our problem, said Perrette with a smile. We have our mission. Execute with excellence. Christopher was eating his dinner at the kitchen table when Sarah came in that night. It was after nine and she was soaked to the skin. Hi, she said, and took off her dripping fur coat and hung it from the back of the kitchen door. Her long black hair clung to back, flat and dripping, streaked with purple and blue. She put her wet towel on the table next to his dinner, then picked it up again straight away. Sorry, she said. Don't mind me. She turned towards the sink and began to rub her hair with the already dripping towel. He watched her carefully. He always did when he got the chance. She was tall, perhaps taller than him. Her hips and shoulders were narrow. Damp and shivering as she was, she looked thin beneath her long black skirt. She lifted her hair, wrapped in another towel, and piled it on top of her head, revealing the nape of her neck. It was slender and vulnerable. At odds with the purple-painted nails, the streaks in her hair, the black eyeliner. Once had he seen her blurred naked outline through the rippled glass of the bathroom door, bending over the basin. It was like seeing her through water. How's the spook's nest? said her muffled voice from under the towel. Oh, you know, quiet. You haven't been out swimming now. Not in this weather. Absolutely, she turned around and gave him a grin. Every day. Never miss. Tonight was fantastic. The tide was way up and the swell was massive. Amazing. Sarah had deep brown eyes, the irises so large they almost showed no white at all. Now, fresh from her swimming, her eyes were bright and shining wet, her pupils darkly dilated. Sometimes Christopher wondered whether she took drugs. She was shivering. It's bloody cold, though, she said. You should try it sometime. I was going to make some tea, he said. Want some? Mmm, she said. Please? She sat at the table and lit a cigarette while he made the tea, and they talked about the weather. He hoped she'd stay and drink it with him, but she didn't. Thanks, she said, and took it up to her room and closed the door. Sarah was already living in the cottage when Christopher took the room. He didn't realize the only other tenant was a woman, 
Somehow he had assumed it would be another serviceman from the base. She didn't talk to him much. He thought it might be the uniform, though he always took it off as soon as he got in. Sometimes she left Greenham common leaflets lying around. He wanted to let her know he was different. He made cynical comments about Mrs. Thatcher and left carefully selected albums, The Cure, The Smiths, The Fall, where she would see them. He wanted Sarah to like him, and he wanted to know more about her. She didn't seem to go to work, as far as he could tell from the overflowing plates and saucers she used as ashtrays. She hung around the house, smoking. He did know that every day she took the narrow path along the cliff edge and down to the bay, where she swam. And every night the man he never saw came to the cottage, and she took him up to her room. Christopher wondered if he was there during the day, too. That night he was lying on his bed, trying to read but thinking of Soviet submarines in the Arctic seas, burrowing forward under the weight of dark waters, bearing their loads of death. He heard Sarah go downstairs and open the door. He heard them go into her room. He listened for the sounds to begin. Christopher's next few days were spent almost entirely in the watch room, listening, watching the scratchy pen trails on the unrolling paper. They were on long shifts, instructed to sleep on the base. There were celebrations when the first traces were triangulated. A U.S. Navy convoy, an aircraft carrier and two cruisers, was steaming northeast of the wrecked Janus Ridge on a course that would take them between Iceland and the Faroes, breaching the GIUK gap. And to the north of them, deep in the Norwegian Sea, three Soviet submarines were on a convergent southward course. The early elation of discovery soon evaporated, replaced by the subdued nervousness in the watchroom as the analyst watched the game play itself out. A Soviet Delta I-class submarine, 139 meters long, propelled by two VM-4 pressurized water nuclear reactors, operates comfortably at depths of up to 400 meters and carries 12 Stingray thermonuclear ballistic missiles. Its hydrophone signature is an unmistakable rhythmic knocking rumble. That is what the approach of Armageddon sounds like. Every hour brought the U.S. convoy and the Soviet submarines closer together. Reagan terrifies the Soviets, someone said. They think he's a religious nut. They think he wants to open the seventh seal. How would you know, said Stone. He was as alert and groomed as ever. I've got friends studying in Moscow. They know people there. You report those contacts. Lighten up, Stone. Shut up, called Christopher. Quiet, let me listen. I've got something else. There was. Something else there was drumming off the Delta Ones and something else. A voice. Not a whale's voice. He heard them calling sometimes out in the lonely ocean. But something larger than a whale. Sadder. More intelligent. More beautiful. It was imitating the submarines. Another voice joined it, harmonizing. Both voices were harmonizing with the submarines' monotones, weaving them into a complex, beautiful song. Listen, Christopher was shouting. For God's sake, shut up and listen. He flipped the feed to the speakers and adjusted the filters to take out the background noise until the long, beautiful song filled the watch room. It's a wind-up, said Stone. You made this yourself. It's a tape. No, said Christopher. It's not. It was impossible to pick out the song on the gram paper. Too much background. No trace there. And then, abruptly, it faded. 
and on the speakers there was only the lonely, ominous tone of the Soviet turbines. That evening, NATO readiness was raised to DEFCON 2 for the first time since Cuba, 1961. The Western military world was just one ratchet below nuclear war. But there was no preventing the British contingent celebrating bonfire night, and the U.S. personnel seized on the distraction. Christopher found himself sitting in a corner, full of beer, the jukebox hammering at his head. Bonnie Tyler, Irene Cara, Billy Joel's uptown girl, yes, owner of a lonely heart. When Kiss came on, lick it up, the bar staff turned the volume up and the bar filled with whooping and cheering. The TV was showing first blood on video without the sound. Christopher was telling some guy he had a guitar at home. He wanted to be a musician, not this kind of crap. The Smiths, for instance. Then he said he had to go to the bathroom. As he left the table, he heard them talking about him. Osgoby, yeah, nice enough guy, maybe, but... ACDC, Guns for Hire, was thumping up the corridor. There was a smell of stale bodies, cigarettes, and beer. He turned away from the bathroom and headed for the quiet of the deserted watch room. Ozone was heavy in the air. The ranks of gram writers were scratching relentlessly at their rolls of paper. He put the headphones on, just to rest in the sounds of the cold mid-ocean darkness. And the beautiful voices were there again. Long and slow, they were calling to each other, and to him. The submarines were still in the song, but it was more complex now, fragmented and recombined, repeated faster and slower, and more voices. Sometimes they broke off in a kind of repetitious bellowing. Slower phrases sank through the octaves until they dropped out of his hearing altogether. They came shrill, intermittent pulses, hard and fast little thumping balls of sound, like birdsong. Each voice had a different way of putting sounds together, each one a clear and distinctive personality, though he could not have described their characteristics in human terms. He almost jumped out of his seat when one came right up close to a hydrophone and shrieked into it, angrily. For an hour, he simply listened. Then, sleepwalking, he plugged in a tape recorder and set it to running. He stayed all night listening, and at the end of the next day's shift, he took the first big risk in his life. Never before had he knownly broke the rules. The big ones, the ones that matter. Never before had he done anything which put him beyond the approval of the authorities. But now he picked up the cassettes of tape and slipped them into his pocket. When he crossed the perimeter, his heart was pumping so hard he could not have spoken, not a word, if they had challenged him. He felt so sick he thought he would just vomit on the spot. But he wasn't stopped. Nobody gave him a second glance. They all knew Osgerby, a nice guy, but... Outside, it was late on Monday afternoon. Thin drifts of mist and drizzle swept across the moorland under a dim gray sky. He was trembling. His legs were so weak he could hardly keep walking. The anxiety on the base, the strain of days watching the traces as the Soviet submarines moved south through icy waters and the U.S. convoy steamed further into the G.I.U.K. gap, had grown so strong you could feel it and smell it. His clothes and his hair, even his skin, were saturated with the sour smell of the watchroom. He smelled of fear. And now, what had he done? He felt the tapes in his pocket, if he were caught, if they knew. When he reached the cliff-edge path which led to the cottage, he needed to rest, 
leaning against a stile, he looked across the mist-shrouded bay. For a moment, the gray veils drifted apart, and he saw the low, dark shape of an island, about a mile out. There should have been no island there. There should have been nothing but the gray body of the sea. But there was no doubting it. He could see an island, a black mass of rock rising to a slight prominence at the northern end. It must have been a mile long. He could make out trees, a low crest of woodland edging the spine of it. Then the mist closed in again, and the island disappeared. Though he stood and waited until he was cold right through and soaking wet, the mist didn't clear again. When the wind picked up and the rain grew heavier, he turned away. There was a mess of wet sand and seaweed on the doorstep, and the air inside the cottage was damp and chill and heavy with the smell of the sea, like a cave on the beach. It felt as if the tide had just withdrawn. Sarah was not at home, and her fur coat was not in its place behind the door. She had left one of her heaps of stuff from the seashore strewn across the table. Seashells, pebbles, pieces of driftwood, seaweed holdfasts, dried urchin cases, mermaids' purses. There was stuff like that all over the cottage. Christopher climbed up to his room, put the first of the cassettes in the tape deck, and fell, exhausted, onto the bed. He was aching with tiredness and tension. As the room filled with the slow, aching voices of the sea, he drifted in a kind of befuddled wakefulness. The long voices on the tape were calling him. He felt as if he were floating deep under the sea himself. His body became larger. He was vast. He no longer had rigid limbs and a heavy skeleton. He was a huge floating agglomeration with no clear edge of definition. He felt like nothing so much as an enormously, hugely, stupendously vast egg, without a shell, floating in the heavy, cold darkness. He stretched for miles. He was held together by the viscosity of himself, denser and more coherent at the center, but spreading outwards in all directions, a vast, shapeless umbra of consciousness that became more dispersed and permeable as it mingled indefinitely with the sea at the borders between him and not him. It was wonderful. He was weightless and timeless. A darkly luminous awareness. An all-encompassing intelligence. He enjoyed the thoughts and feelings that passed through him. He savored them. He lingered patiently over every insight and sensation, tasting the currents of the ocean as he slowly, languorously turned and stretched like a comfortable cat. There was a tentative knock at his bedroom door. He jumped up in a guilty panic and slammed off the tape layer. It was Sarah. Oh, he said. Hi. Can I come in? Well, uh, sure, I guess. Evening had come. He had been lying in his room in near darkness. It's a bit of a mess in here, he said. He couldn't think straight. He stood in the doorway, hesitating, blocking her way. I was listening, she said. To those sounds. Oh, I didn't think anyone else round here could hear them. I thought I was the only one. You've heard that before. How could? Can I come in? I mean, just for a minute. Well, I guess so. I don't want to disturb you. I mean, I'm sorry. I couldn't help but hear. You had it on very loud. The thing is, he said, I don't know what it is. I wish I did, but I don't. How could you... Uh, I mean, do you... I don't know. Maybe. Possibly. 
I'm not sure. Look, I'm sorry to disturb you. Another time. No, wait, come in. He stood aside and turned on the desk lamp. Please. Afterwards, Christopher found that he couldn't remember the detail of what they actually said that evening. Above all, what he did remember was Sarah sitting in the fat red leatherette chair and him on the bed. Her black purple streaked hair, still wet from swimming in the sea, held back from her face with a black band. She was wearing a gray cardigan with holes in the sleeves, a long black skirt, scruffy flat shoes that left the top of her pale feet bare. The slender bone structure moved visibly when she flexed her toes. She smoked as they talked. Somehow she ended up asking him about himself. And somehow, because he was overstretched and bewildered, and she was listening to him, he told her. It came out all mixed up. How he wanted to be a musician, but his parents wanted a proper career for him. The Navy had paid for him to study electronics. The money was good, he said. I never really thought what would happen afterwards. And now here I am. He told her about listening for submarines, hearing the beautiful songs of the sea, making the tapes, stealing them. God knows what made me. If they find out, Christ, it's spying. It's probably treason. But they don't know, do they? She said. And they can't find out. I could take them back or burn them. No, she said. Don't do that. What is it anyway? It's got to be organic, like whale song. Only we get whales all the time. They sound nothing like that. You said you heard it before? Well, I thought so. Maybe. When? When could you have? Oh. She looked surprised. Swimming out in the bay. When I go deep, sometimes I... But really, don't know. I shouldn't have said anything. I need to hear it more. I was only listening from downstairs. He stood up. I'll put it on now. Not now, she said. I have to go. She stood up. Without either of them intending it, they found themselves close together. They both hesitated. Christopher found he was looking into her face intently, examining her. He knew the expression on his face was wide open, unprotected, obvious, like he never let it be, the need and wanting, plain and raw. Scarcely knowing what he was doing, he took hold of her arm gently. Sarah, I... She withdrew her arm from his grip. I'd better go, she said. The smell of her cigarettes lingered in the room. Later the man came to the house again. Christopher played the Blue Monday 12-inch over and over again. Tell me how do I feel. Tell me, now how do I feel. When he finally slept, he dreamed of sleek, coiling monsters. The next morning, the rain had lifted. But though he stood for fifteen minutes on the cliff top to scan the dull gray water under a watery sky, there was no island out there. As he got near the base, the fear reached inside his chest and began to squeeze. By the time he reached the gates, he was water inside, knowing the guards would arrest him, but they nodded him through. No one looked up when he entered the watchroom, but the usual trays were empty. Hey, he said to Stone, trying to make it casual. We are the scrolls from yesterday. What? Oh, yeah. Special analysis. Somebody making a cross-check with Reykjavik or something. All of them? Guess so. Who does reconciliation in the middle of an exercise? Stone shrugged. What's it matter? Some hush-hush thing, you know. He tapped the side of his nose. Sneaky biggie, ask no questions. 
Don't patronize me, Stone. I'm senior officer on this watch, and I should know what's happening. Sure, whatever you say, Lieutenant. Why don't you go ask Perrette about it? Christopher buried his head in his work. He kept the headphones on as much as he could, but there was nothing to hear. As the day wore on, he found it harder and harder to concentrate. He wanted to hear again the long songs of the sea. He wanted to go back to the cottage and play the tapes. Sarah would be there now, alone, probably. By lunchtime, crisis gripped NAVFAC Meriday. The Delta Ones were hanging motionless in the mid-ocean. NATO was at DEFCON 1. Nobody at Meriday was quite sure whether Able Archer 83 was still in exercise or not. Lieutenant Christopher Osgerby quietly put down his pen, put on his coat, and walked off the base. Sarah's fur coat was in its place at the back of the kitchen door. He felt it with his hands and buried his face in it briefly. It was slightly damp and smelled of the beach. He stood outside the door of her room, listening. If she was there, she was surely on her own. Unless they were sleeping. Christopher knocked. He'd never done that before. He'd never seen inside her room. The door opened. Oh, she said. She looked puzzled. I thought you were at work. Is everything okay? He held out the tape cassettes. I brought you these. You said yesterday you wanted to air them properly. I don't know if you've got a tape player. I'm fine, thanks. I'll listen to them. She was going to close the door. Sarah, he said, um, yesterday. Christopher, I'm really, really sorry. I was so rude. I'm really... To just get off like that, I should have... No, he said. It's okay, please. I didn't think, she said. Her whiteless brown eyes seemed to be searching for something in his face. It was an odd, alien look that he couldn't interpret. The skin of her face looked cool and pale. It shone faintly in the half-light on the landing, as if it were slightly damp. It doesn't matter, he said. Really, listen, I was just thinking, seeing we live out here together, it might be nice if, well, we could go out one evening, maybe, for a drink or something. Chris, you know, I'm seeing someone, don't you? He felt his face coloring. Well, I thought, anyway, let me know what you think of the tape. He turned to go. Wait, she said. Look, I wasn't going to... She was struggling with something. He couldn't tell what it was. But she seemed to make up her mind. She held open the door to her room. Come in a moment. The curtains were drawn, and her room was cool in the afternoon half-light, filtered through thin, pale green fabric. There was almost no furniture. Sarah sat on the floor, and he did the same, trying to stop himself peering about, but only ended up feeling furtive. As his eyes adapted to the dim light, he saw heaps of beach stuff she had collected. It was piled up on the windowsill and scattered across the uncarpeted floorboards. The faint smell of the sea was on the air again. It tinged his awareness of Sarah herself, her cool, thin body under her black clothes, and behind her shoulder the distracting, shadowy bulk of her bed. There's something I should have said yesterday, she said. But I didn't, I wasn't sure I could. Actually, I'm still not sure I can. Christopher was struggling to keep his attention focused. You can say what you want to me, he said. It's about the tapes. Oh? You mustn't listen to them. They're dangerous. I mean, what you can hear on them is dangerous. And you mustn't listen to it again. Not ever. He couldn't see much of her face, only a soft silhouette. What was she trying to say? Destroy the tapes? Don't listen again? No, she couldn't mean that. 
The long song of the sea was wonderful. It was essential. You know what a sound is, he said. Don't you? You have to tell me, Sarah. I can't, but I know you have to stop listening. But it's beautiful, and I found it. I taped it. It's my discovery. I can't just chuck it away. It's more important than that. What do you know? Listening to it gives you dreams, doesn't it? Yes. And you want to listen to it? More than you want to do anything else in the world? He was watching the pale glimmer of her skin in the shadows, the darkness of her hair, the darkness of her mouth, the purple of her fingernails. Not more than anything, he said, but basically yes. Sarah took a breath. There's no name for them, she said. Not anymore. Most people can't hear them. If you can, it's a gift, but dangerous, like an addiction. Hearing their song sucks away your energies. All you want to do is listen more and more. It gets in your blood. It takes you over. It calls to you. And in the end, it pulls you down deep into the water and you drown. That's why when you hear it, you have to turn away fast and come out of the sea. So we both have this gift, he said. But I've only heard it on the hydrophones. Maybe that's not the same. You mustn't listen, Christopher. You mustn't go looking for them. What I'm hearing is way out in the Atlantic. Are you saying they come in shore too? Here? Maybe. I think so. They're everywhere. What are they? Some kind of whale or something? She shook her head and looked away towards the curtained window, as if she were looking towards the sea. She sat that way in silence for a moment. I'm not supposed to say, she said carefully in a low, quiet voice. Sarah. She held out her hands towards him in the dim greenish light. Palms upwards and fingers spread wide. He saw that her fingers, but not her thumb, were joined below the first joint by thin and delicately translucent folds of skin. His heart was tight in his chest. It was hard to breathe. He wanted to put his arms around her narrow shoulders. He wanted those pale, slender hands to touch his skin. Her whiteless brown eyes glistened. You'd better go, she said. He looked round her sparse room, heaped with things from the sea. What's happening to you? He said. I'm diving deep. You can't get involved. That guy comes here in the night. He's part of it, isn't he? Who is he? She flinched, closing herself against him. I'm sorry, he said. Leave me alone. I know what I'm doing, and it's nothing to do with you. He was right. I shouldn't have talked to you. Please go now. That night. Christopher heard him come to her again. Their voices were raised, arguing, but he couldn't make out words. Later, he heard Sarah cry out. It might have been pain, but it wasn't. He woke before dawn from dreams of the sea. Someone was moving around in Sarah's room. He heard scuffing, the scrape of wood on wood, her heaps of shoreline stuff being shoved aside. Through the wall came a man's grunt and a muffled curse. As if he had stumbled in the dark, then her bedroom door opened and heavy footsteps went down the stairs. Christopher pulled on his trousers and searched around for his socks, but couldn't find them. He pulled his shoes on anyway and went downstairs. If he could surprise the man before he left, if he found them both together in the kitchen, he would. What? There was no time to think. In the kitchen, it was stone. He was standing by the kitchen table, holding tape cassettes in the air like a trophy. Stone, what the hell are you doing here? Get out of my kitchen. Get out of my house. Why don't you just sit down, Lieutenant? Collect your thoughts. 
Stone started opening cupboards at random. Where the hell do you keep your coffee? I need a cup. This is too early for me. Just get out, said Christopher. How'd you get in here anyway? Where's Sarah? He looked over Stone's shoulder. The kitchen door was unbolted and standing open. Sarah's fur coat gone from its place. If she had heard Stone coming and run, she needed time. He would give it to her if he could. He sat down heavily at the table. Yes, T, he said, over there. Thanks, said Stone. He began to busy himself with filling the kettle. Mugs? What are you doing in my house, Stone? You're in deep shit, Oscarby. You could disappear for a long time because of these. He brandished the cassettes again. Christopher sat in silence. What was there to say? Nothing. He had no energy left. Not even anger. He let time drift on while Stone made tea. Stone set a mug in front of each of them and sat down facing him across the table. They looked at each other in silence. Suddenly, Stone stood up again. Where's your bin? He said. What? There, but... Stone went over, stepped on the lever to open up the pedal bin, dropped in the tapes, let the lid fall shut with a small thud, and sat back down in his chair. There, he said. Ever forgotten, never happened. Christopher stared at him. You've got talent, Lieutenant. Pity to waste it. What are you talking about? Who are you, anyway? Never mind that. I'm authorized to make you an offer. No security, aren't you? S.O.S. Box. You never did know your arse from your elbow reading the feed. And you like to listen, don't you, Chris? Just listen. That's what you do best, isn't it? And you hear things no one else can hear. We've looked at the screws from the last few days over and over again. But we just can't find what you've picked up on those tapes. It's in there somewhere. Bound to be. But we can't pick it out of the background noise. Maybe we never will. Not without a human yard to sniff it first, like you can. There's a couple of others who can do it, too. The CIA's got them tucked away safe at Langley. But we need more talent. One at every SOSUS base. So that's the offer. Just carry on listening and tell me, only me, what you hear. We'll do the rest. And forget this tape business. You'll be listening for Queen and Country. And furthering your career. You know about those traces already? Oh, sure. We've got a good idea what's making them, too. We're trying to figure out how to make them respond when we want them to, so we can track them. That's what this exercise has been all about, as far as Mayday is concerned. The target wasn't the Soviets, was it? We're looking for things in the water, Chris. The Soviets don't matter anymore. Their history. Ideology's history. Money is freedom, and Reagan's pockets are bottomless. The Soviets are bust, and the clever ones know it. So what comes next? That's the question. And the answer is, the sea, full fathom five. The sea's the next frontier. Nobody but nobody cares about space anymore. SDI is all my eye, and there's shit all else out there. It's empty. Expensive and empty. But the sea, now... The vasty deeps, seven-tenths and all that. Who knows what's lurking out there? That's where we're going now, and we'll want people like you who have affinities with it. And all you want me to do is listen. Sure, just sit comfortably and listen. Oh, and you can tell us all about your pretty girlfriend upstairs, too. Go to Hellstone, or whatever your name is.
Stone shrugged. Thinking over, he said, for a little while. You don't have many options. He stood. My car's outside. Can I give you a lift to the base? Just get out of my house. Christopher waited until he heard the car drive away down the track, then went out into the chill November dawn. The encounter with Stone had only taken ten minutes. Fifteen, maybe. Of course, he didn't know how long Stone had been in the house before he woke up, but maybe there was still time. There was only one way she could have gone, along the cliff path. He followed, running hard, stumbling along the narrow path. As the gray light grew in the sky, the low, dark outline of the island was visible out in the bay. He caught sight for a moment of a figure silhouetted some way ahead of him along the path. The figure disappeared, but he knew where she had gone. The way down to the little bay was steep and difficult in the half-light. There was a fine rain falling that made the stones slippery. He had to watch where he put his feet and hold knotted roots of gorse for balance. When he reached the beach of sharp, jagged rocks and shingle, there was no one to be seen. The tide was halfway out. He could hear the waves breaking on the shore. He stumbled forward, calling, Sarah! Sarah! As he rounded the high black rock, she spoke to him. You can't follow me, Chris. She was standing naked in the rain. She looked thin and cold. The rain had smoothed her black hair over the shape of her head and down her narrow shoulders. A trail of it fell across her face. He saw the fine goosebumps on her arms and the faint blue-pink mottling of the flesh on her legs. Her dark eyes were looking at him with no expression that he could read. Go home, she said. You're going to the island. I have to go now, Chris. Because you told me. Because I know. It's my fault, isn't it? It's what I want. But I want it too. I have the gift too. The sound of that song, it's inside me now. I can't get rid of it. And I've got nowhere else to go. I can't go back. They want me to. At, at the base. They know what's out there. They'll come looking. Maybe I can help. Chris, I'm sorry. It was the same old story. You see her and you need her. And because you need her, you lose her. That's how it always is for the men on the shore. She wakes something up inside you that never goes back to sleep. It drives you on forever. You spend the rest of your life looking for her. But you can never actually have her. Chris, I'm not... Whatever you think I am, you've made a mistake. She turned away from him and walked out into the purple-gray water. He watched her until the swell rose against her breasts, and she leaned forward into it and began to swim. Her sleek, dark head turned to look back at him for a moment. He thought he could see her wide, whiteless brown eyes observing him, like seals sometimes did when he walked on the beach. Then the sea closed over her. Christopher stood, shivering, watching the dull gray swell. It had begun to rain. There was a thunderous, rattling, clattering mechanical roar behind him. He ducked instinctively. A Sea King helicopter roared out over the clifftop, flying low, heading out into the bay. So that is the then and now for this month. Which one do you think is the better story? Is it Peter Higgins with Listening for Submarines or is it the August Earthless story? Do come over to the front of the website. There will be a little widget there. You can click on that and vote. There you go. That is 
Starship so far, 157. Don't forget, copyright to that story is Peter Higgins. Peter, thank you so much. And Shane Goosey, thank you, sir. That's it. 157, put to bed. Listen, four days until Starship Sova Stories Volume 2 comes out. You can get it in a number of editions, starting from PDF 499, right up until the Collector's 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 Special Edition hardback with them signatures of every author. £75, that is the price of that edition. From there, the range right the way down, like I say, until the 499 one. This is how... I run the show now, so this is this money you buy or you buy this book keeps this show going. So if you like what you hear, please do support Starship Sova. That would be fantastic. And I'm so looking forward to it as well. Some hard work on in there. Nearly a bloody year's work of hard work. Do, you know, if you want, please support Starship Sova and get this copy of this book. It'll go with the next one. And if you wanted to, you know, if you were kind enough, you can buy Starship Sova's Volume 1 as well. There'll be a little bit of a discount on that if people have already bought it. You know, I'm going to knock that price down as well. So there you go. They'll all fit nicely on your bookshelf. Don't forget to go over the website. Come over to the front of the website and you'll see a link on for Starship Sova's Stories Volume 2. Please bookmark that page and 10-10-2010 when it comes out. Do me a big favour and treat yourself to it. Thank you so much for listening to this show. Just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Story Here are your people to get free. Two, one.